Good morning to all of you in the room this morning, to those of you who are following online, uh, whether you're in Florida or Chicago or Cote d'Ivoire, wherever you're following from, welcome. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what God says about sex. I'm hoping he has something to say or this is going to be really short. <laughs> Somebody approached me after the service, the first service, and said, Pastor Joel, in the church I grew up in, we didn't talk about these kind of things. I said, don't worry about it. The church I grew up in, it was the same thing. But we can't jump over chapter 7, so let's plunge in. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking in a church that it was a lot of fun, but most of you probably wouldn't feel totally at home. It's, it's quite different than... Uh, what Sunday morning looks like on this campus, on the Olmstead campus, Lorraine. First, because most of the people that attend there are French-speaking people from West and Central Africa, so most of the service was in French and Lingala. The worship, probably two or three decibels louder than it is here. Uh, we did sing one song in English, but it took me about three verses to figure out which song it was because it just doesn't sound the same. The flow of the service is a little different too. I, I love preaching here at Grace. When it's my turn, usually sometime midweek, I get the first draft of the plan for the service. Pastor Joel, you start talking at this time. If you're not done at this time, somebody will come and escort you off the stage. You know, things like that. This church was a little different. Uh, they told me what time the service was. I got there about 15 minutes before. Somebody ushered me in, sat me up front. The room was already about half full. They were singing. Not really sure when the service started. It, the service is a little bit like heaven. You don't know when it starts or when it's going to end. It's just how flows. Didn't even tell me when I was going to speak. Very different. Same faith. Same gospel, same Jesus. The church happens to be the same denomination as Grace Church. Actually in the same city. It's right down the road on the west side of Cleveland on Clark Street. However, the similarities end there. Inevitably, church needs to reflect the language and the culture of its locality. This letter that we've been looking at was written to a church in the first century. Uh, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, church was a brand new idea, brand new reality. In fact, there wasn't even a word for it. They borrowed a Greek word, ekklesia, but it, that wasn't the word for church. It was actually the word to describe a gathering of people, often for political reasons. One commentator said, they were gatherings of people who had been summoned. Great word to describe the church. This groups of people that had found Christ, had been reconciled to God in Christ, and now were gathering to worship God and accomplish the mission of Christ. No matter where that is done, it, it needs to have a local language, if you will. The form that church takes should always be adapted to the language and culture where it's located. But that's also where tension happens. 
How do you be relevant to the culture that you're living in but not be shaped by its values? Well, those are the questions that Paul is asking and answering in these first chapters. We talked at the beginning about divisiveness. The people in the church in Corinth, it wasn't in church that they learned divisiveness. It was just part of their culture. There were, there were a lot of intellectuals, philosophers, politicians, and it wasn't about an exchange of ideas. It was you, you aligned yourself with one of them, and this one is better than that one, and, and that seeped into the church. Now, that would never happen in 21st century America, but apparently that happened back then. But another place where the cultural tension was being felt was in the area of sexual immorality. Corinth, in fact, was a licentious city. Sexual immorality, it wasn't only part of the religion in Corinth. It was something that was celebrated. The, the moral laxity of the community of Corinth was often seeping and finding its way into the church. So Paul is addressing another immoral issue, if you will. We've already said that Corinth was a litigious city. He talks about not taking your brother to court. And, but it was also a licentious city. Marriage covenants were being broken because sexual immorality was just part of the culture. In French, they say, mm, c'est normal, which simply means, of course it's that way. That's just, that's how it is. In fact, the main god, the heroine of Corinth, was a god named Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess, uh, the Romans called Aphrodite uh, Venus. Aphrodite was the, the goddess of beauty, of love, of sexual desire. And in fact, in the temple of Aphrodite, prostitution was part of their worship. It's where we get the English word aphrodisiac. John Stumbo, in his book, Stained Beauty, says it like this. <clears throat> the goddess Aphrodite was an intricate part of Corinthian culture, braiding her way into the religion, economy, architecture, literature, art, and most notably, the morals of the city. That was Corinth. And in the middle of this same city is this group of people who have been reconciled to God in Christ, in whom the Spirit of God has come to live, what was that supposed to look like? A few years ago, uh, Mercedes-Benz had a commercial that I, that I really liked. In the commercial, there you see this like office building. That's back when people worked in offices. And... It zooms in, it's like the third floor, and you see all these engineers like focused on this design they're doing of this next generation Mercedes and sweating over it. And it's in the afternoon, and then, and then the clock on one of the engineers' desks is 3 a.m., and they're all still there just, just killing themselves for this. And then it says, they did that so you could have this. And then you see this two-door Mercedes sports car flying down the Autobahn in Germany. 
You see it and then it pans in and now you're inside the car and you're going 180 kilometers and now they, they don't have the same problems we do here. It's flying down the Autobahn and you're sitting in the car and you can't even hear a wisp of wind. And then you go back to these engineers and they're all smiling. Like, that's what we dreamed of. Let me take you to another scene. This was about the same time we were living in Dakar, Senegal. I'm at the gas station one day and getting the uh, tires of my vehicle pumped up and I'm looking and, and I see in the distance the same Mercedes coming towards me. Wow, it's really nice, beautiful. It's a late version. It's getting closer and I'm like, wow. It's got like scratches on the side. The, the roof has a little dent in it and it comes swerving into the gas station. And I mean, this is a little two-door sports car and doors open, about five young Senegalese guys jump out, the trunk's open, there's shovels, there's bags of cement, there's bricks. And I'm thinking, I wonder if those engineers ever imagined this. Can you haul bricks and cement? in a $90,000 sports car? Well, you can if you want to, but that might not be what it was designed for. Paul's message to these brothers and sisters that he loved is that the sexual intimacy was a beautiful gift, and it's actually God that was the creator. And we find all kinds of ways to use it. But, it, but if you don't understand the design, it can actually cause pain. Let me read the verses for you. I've, this, this is out of the message, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 to 6. This is how he says it. Paul. Now, getting down to the question you ask in your letter to me, uh, apparently, this was a conversation going back and forth, and there are questions that they addressed to Paul. First question, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Well, certainly. But only within a certain context. It, it's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to pound the table and stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and if it's for the purpose of praying and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. Hear me, I'm not understand commanding these periods abstinence. I'm only providing my best counsel if you would choose that. Here's the question. The church is asking of Paul. Is sex actually a good thing? Paul's answer? Yeah, it is. In the context that God created it. 
Literally in Greek, the question was stated like this. Is it a good thing for a man to touch a woman? That's a euphemism. He's not saying like to touch somebody. It's a euphemism asking, is it a good thing for a husband and wife to have sexual relations? Why would they be asking that question? Well, there was two conflicting ideas, if you will, in the church. One was aestheticism. It's the idea that, maybe a belief that, that sex is okay, but it, it's not that, it should best be avoided. The notion is that to have sexual relations, it's just unspiritual. And they were the first to have the idea, but it's a thought that has been practiced in different ways throughout church history. The monks, if we just remove ourselves far enough from temptation, then it won't be a problem anymore. Jesus turns that on, his, on its head. The problem is that no matter where we go, we go with us. And temptation is usually not a problem out there. It's, it's something inside of us. And Jesus has come to recreate the inside. Aestheticism. The other extreme that they were battling against was promiscuity, a lifestyle that it regarded the body, body as, as separate from the soul. So your soul could be attached to God and pure, but what you did in your body didn't. Paul's saying no. In chapter 6, the pastor Jonathan opened for us last Sunday. Paul says, don't, don't you know? That your body, your physical body, it's, it's you, your soul, your spirit. And the spirit of the living God has come to live inside you. You've become a temple of the living God. So neither of these perspectives reflect the view that Scripture gives us. Paul is now going to reset, if you will, the language, the conception no pun intended, about sex. In fact, sexual intimacy was created by God to be enjoyed, but also to affirm the covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife. God's love expresses itself covenantally. What does that mean? God doesn't just send cards from time to time to let us know that he loves us and send us a message. No, he, he covenants with people. So the Bible that we've received, the revelation is, is in two parts. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. A testament is an alliance. It's a covenant. And God covenanted with his people Israel. I will be your God. I will do this. And no matter what they did, he remained their God. Through them comes the Messiah and a new covenant that God makes with us in Christ. That's how he loves us. It's unshakable. Why is that important? It's important so that we can live. We can live in and trust the love of God because he's a God who makes covenants and he keeps his word. He gave to his church what we call sacraments. They're symbols that represent that. Baptism that we talked about earlier. 
Baptism is a, is a telling of the picture that, that Christ died for us, and now because of his death, we die to our old way of life. When we're ra- Last week, we, we held in our hands the bread and the cup, and he said, every time you do this, remember, this is a covenant in my blood, my body for you. So, practically, what does it say to us? I think the first idea that you see in these verses in in chapter 6 and 7 is that sex is not God. You go, Pastor, that's kind of obvious. Well, it is obvious intellectually, but sometimes in the daily living out of it, it can get confused. This is what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 13. He said, your body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is actually for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, makes the point that all of us are worshipers. All of us worship. We give value to someone or something in our lives. You don't have any choice. You are a worshiper. The only choice you have is what or who you're going to worship. And if that someone or something is not God, then who or what you worship, Keller says, becomes an idol. It's, it's, it's all of us. Augustine says that all of us are like idol-making factories. We come up with all kinds of things. An idol, Tim Keller says, is often a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that, I I have nothing. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. And worship is our way of trying to find whatever or whoever that is that can fill the empty in our souls. The city of Corinth worshiped Aphrodite. Sexual pleasure was literally their God. And they weren't trying to hide it. They had temples to Aphrodite. They had monuments of Aphrodite, really sensual. It was in front of the eyes of everybody. The generation that we are living in, sexual pleasure has become an identity, a life pursuit. And we don't have monuments and temples. But Jesus said, if you want to know who someone's God is, look at where they invest their time and their money. Somebody told me this week that over the last few years, the revenue of the pornography industry in our country is more than the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball all put together. I don't have the figures for that. Even if it's half true, the message is is pretty poignant. Here's the problem. Anything that you worship that isn't God ends up enslaving you. Sexual pleasure is a gift. 
but it is a lousy God. And our culture is living the consequences. This statement was made by the American Sexual Health Association. I don't know who they are, but this is what they said in April 2022. They make the statement that as long as there is consent and no danger to anyone involved, there is no right or wrong way to have sexual pleasure. This can involve multiple sexual partners. Essentially what they're saying is whatever gives you pleasure, it's good. But whatever you worship that isn't God ends up enslaving you. Here's the second idea. Paul goes on to say that desire is strong. This is how he says it. Sexual drives are strong. But marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Really important idea. Sometimes in the church, we act like desires are evil. Most of the desires that we have were actually put there by God. Now, they can get really deformed, but the desires themselves are ultimately to push us to him. And sexual desire was put there by God. He is the designer. But it's one of the most easy ones to misinterpret. Desire, sexual desire, has a physical aspect to it, obviously, but it's actually rooted in something much deeper. Don't be surprised. Some time ago, I was counseling a young theology student, and he was struggling with some behavior things in his life, and I suggested to him that maybe the behavior wasn't the issue, maybe it was something deeper. And I asked him, what, when those moments arrive, what, what are you thinking about? Oh, he paused, he said, Pastor, sometimes the thoughts that I have, oh my goodness, they're really strong. I said, well, tell me what you're thinking about. Pastor, I, 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 it's really, a, I mean, I, I can just tell you they're really strong. I said, well, are you thinking about sex? He said, how did you know? I said, well, you're a human being and you're breathing, so I just took a shot. <laughs> It's strong. And, and Paul says, the only place that's strong enough to live that out is where there's a covenantal commitment. The last thing he says, chapter 7, verse 2 to 6, he says that it's good. It's really important. I didn't say it's easy I said it's good. God is not anti-sex. He's actually the creator. It's a beautiful gift. Listen to how Paul says it. He said, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. 
It is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. This is not objectifying women or men. Don't go home today and say, you heard what the pastor said. Your body belongs to me. Let's get to it. I know none of you would say that. I'm just saying. That's not what this is saying. It's actually saying the exact opposite of that. It's my responsibility to serve my wife. Wherever. Whatever. Somebody said to me after the first service, that's impossible. Yeah, that's the point. You can't do it. It's only God that can do that. But when he does it, it's the most beautiful thing because really, sex is not about something physical. It's about intimacy. And that kind of intimacy to be truly known and truly loved. Genesis 2 says that the first couple, Adam and Eve, they were naked. Yeah, that's physical, but but they were known to the other without shame. But that doesn't happen with anybody, anytime. That happens, Paul says, in this relationship that God has created. And he says, actually, the greatest joy is when you become a blessing to your spouse and they become a blessing to you. And that is God. Sexual intimacy cannot thrive long-term without first learning to put your spouse's needs before your own. Sex can get you a little ways down the road in marriage, but if there's not a deeper commitment to the good of the other, it loses steam. Okay, how do you make that practical? This is actually a hard thing to talk about. Not because the Bible doesn't talk about it, not because we shouldn't be talking about it, but because it's this beautiful thing that God created. But things that God creates that are beautiful and powerful have the same potential to cause pain. And where you're living today might be painful. Maybe it's the absence in your life of sexual intimacy, and that's causing pain. It may be the presence of it in your life, but in places that it shouldn't be. I I would venture to say that there's probably very few people in this room that haven't felt pain at one time in their life or another around all of this in their life. If you're here this morning, whether you're married or unmarried, but you're struggling, whatever that looks like. I remember the years that I was the campus pastor at Olmstead Falls. There was a group of men that met on Saturday mornings. I was not there this Saturday when this conversation happened, but this is how it was told to me, that in the group, I think it was during their prayer time, somebody said, hey, I read this statistic this week that said that almost 60% of men in the church struggle with pornography. Boom. Sentence falls out. 
in the room, there's about 12 or 14 men. Wow. If that's true, that means that in this room, that's a problem. Sadly, it's a problem in the church that we're afraid to talk about, that we're afraid to say out loud. So what are we going to do? Well, they, they opened the door for a ministry at our campus for men who are struggling with addictions. And I think became a place of freedom for a number of people. If, if you're struggling, where, whatever that looks like this morning, the good news is that, that Jesus can, there's nothing in Christ that is hopeless, but the road back to health is often in community. And there's lots of places you can connect to that here. Maybe you're married this morning, and right now in your couple, it's just a place of pain. You're not even sure how to talk about it anymore. Can I encourage you? Don't stay there. If you need the help, there's counselors here that can help you. Often, we try to correct that problem in our marriage. Well, maybe we'll try this technique or this. Often, it's something deeper that when the intimacy in your couple is struggling, often it's there that that's revealed. Take that as a gift and allow God to heal. Okay. Three ideas in closing. Number one, God is the only one worthy and good enough in your life to be God. Married, unmarried, the question of your life is always, how do I live as though I actually belong to him? Something all of us keep coming back to all our lives. It's a journey. When I moved to Olmsted Falls, we were just starting a church at the time, and so one of the first things I did was I went and I met a bunch of people in the community, the mayor, some of the school officials, county officials, uh, chamber of commerce, just to get to know people and get to know the town. It was one of those interviews. I was with a gentleman who was a leader in the community, and I mean, he knew I was a pastor. I told him that, but I was, hey, how long you lived in Olmsted Falls? What do you like about it? What do you love about this community? What can you tell me that will help me as, as we're moving in? So we're talking about this very warm conversation, and right in the middle of the conversation, he stops and he looks at me and he says, Pastor, you know that I believe in God. Well, great, why don't you tell him that? Like, I, I mean, I'm happy to know, but that, that's between you and him, actually. But then what he said... He said, he said this. He said, I believe in God, but I just think there's a lot of people who just exaggerate. I said, really? Because I'm a pastor, I didn't say what actually was in my mind, but I wanted to say, like, how would you exaggerate that? Like, the God of the universe who, who speaks and oceans are, and holds planets on the tip of his finger and he knows the name of all the galaxies and he, he sent his own son to be brutally crucified to die so you wouldn't have to. Like, what is it that you would do for him that you would think was exaggerating? Like Maybe going to church twice a year? Like, what would that look like? I, don't worry, I didn't say that. But that's, 
That's a struggle for all of us. Yeah, I believe in God, but I don't want him telling me how to manage my money. I believe in God, but I don't want him telling me how to live my sexuality. The inconvenient thing C.S. Lewis says about God is if you actually believe he's God, then you're not. And one of the ways that, that trusting him is to say, you know what? This is what he said, and I'm going to trust him in this. He's worthy. Second thing, each one of us in truth will live a lot of our lives unmarried. Some of you haven't been married yet. Others of you have been married, but at some point lost your spouse, whatever that was. What does that look like? Well, it's actually sometimes in those places that we learn most acutely the depth of God's unfailing love. The way Tim Keller says it, sometimes we don't realize Jesus is all that we need until Jesus is all that we have. But when you learn that, it's, it's profoundly deep. And you, you learn that, yeah, you know, sex is great. Yeah, power is great. But there's something that's gooder than all that. Yeah, gooder is not a French word. It's not an English word either. Don't worry. I'm just trying to say that it's sometimes that you learn how gooder he is in those places. Last idea. God has called us as his people to live out the beauty of covenantal love in the midst of our culture. That's what Paul is saying to these people in Corinth. Corinth has lots of problems. They need to see. You need to see. Your children need to see. The people that you work with, what would it look like if there was somebody that actually loved you just for you? There is. It's God. But how are other people ever going to know that, Paul says in Ephesians 5, if they never see it? Well, where would they see that? Well, they would see that in a relationship of two people, not just when it goes good, you know what, we're just struggling, I just need to go, no, who commit themselves in a covenant to one another and they live it out. Wow, that's powerful. God didn't ask us to judge how the world chooses to live. I remember hearing a Moody lecture one time, I forget the pastor's name, but he said, you know why pagans act like they do? Because they're pagans. Because that, it's, of course. But Paul is saying to this group of believers, wow, what an opportunity to live out something else. John Stumbo says it like this. As a church, we will be wise to quit wringing our hands and shaking our fists and pointing our fingers at the world and the way it behaves. 
Our responsibility is to lead the church in holiness and love, not to require the world to live by our standards. Pray with me. Father, sometimes your words are not easy. Thank you that the way that you have loved us is yes and amen. Paul says that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you, you actually say to us that when we learn to love like that in our marriages, in our relationships, that it actually blesses us. Teach us, Lord, to be like that. In this room this morning, uh, Holy Spirit, you know the hearts of all of us, that you would blow your healing wind, that some of the places that are broken would find first steps towards healing. In Jesus' name, amen.